Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to share this message today. And as always, I pray that I'd not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that you would speak in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I thought I'd start today by telling you a little bit of my background. I came to the United States with my husband and two children in 1999, but I was born in a very small town called Luantia in Zambia. My father worked underground on the large copper mine there, along with several thousand others. But like many miners the world over, our family was not well off. Our house was very small and we didn't have a lot. My parents were not from missionary or even Christian stock, as you might imagine. In fact, they didn't follow God at all. And when I accepted Christ as my saviour in my mid-twenties, my father was actually very disappointed in me because, to be honest, he thought that Christians were weak and that they lacked intelligence. Coming from humble circumstances... I was not able to go to university, but that did not limit God's plan for me. As early on in my walk with him, I distinctly heard God's call that I was to teach his word. At that time, I was a young married woman struggling with infertility, living in a new town in a different African country where I didn't know many people. I had lots of time on my hands and I was able to spend hours each day in God's word, in part as my escape from loneliness. I started attending a women's Bible study where they did a lot of knitting and crochet work while watching a gospel video series. That first morning, I quickly realized that what was being taught on the video that week tied with some of the things I'd been reading in my study Bible. So making hurried notes on an old envelope that acted as a marker in my Bible, I asked if I could share a few thoughts once the video was done. Well, the women liked what I shared so much that they asked if I could do the same the following week, and I'm happy to tell you that within a month or two, they all stopped knitting and started eagerly following along in their Bibles. Though it was never undertaken lightly or without the prayerful support of many others, as God opened the door, I stepped into the ministry he led me to. And I want you to know I'd been a Christian by this point for only seven months. But I took courage from the fact that in the scriptures, God often chooses unlikely messengers to take his good news to others. One of my favorite examples of that is in Acts chapter 4 verse 13. Two simple fishermen, Peter and John, had been teaching and speaking of Jesus with such authority that when the Pharisees and religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. 
God's word reveals again and again that he is not limited by where we came from, who our parents were, or what we might have done before we came to trust him. And though it's good to be trained and to constantly improve our knowledge and our skills, it's not ultimately about the training we've had. It is rather about our relationship with Jesus. What we do for God's kingdom is far more about him than it ever is about us. And the fact that God has given me the opportunity to speak to people from all walks of life all over the world should be a great encouragement to everyone. Because if he can use a nobody from a poor miner's family in an obscure African town like me, there's no reason that he can't use you too. Though it's taken a long time to get to where I am today, uh, now a large portion of my ministry in the United States anyway is carried out through live online Bible classes and our YouTube channel. These classes are also recorded for radio and are broadcast by shortwave across 75% of the continent of Africa. And because it is shortwave radio, those messages have the potential to travel far beyond the targeted area of 2 billion people. In fact, we know that the broadcast actually reaches as far away as New Zealand, and I've even received a listener's question from someone in Germany. Other shorter messages are broadcast across the Middle East, and of course there are the podcasts as well. No one is more amazed by all of that than me, for though there have been many people who have faithfully supported me along the way, the question I still ask myself is why does God use any of us at all, but especially why does he use those who seem to be, shall we say, underqualified? Why does he choose ordinary people and then do extraordinary things with them? I believe it's because then the glory for what is accomplished really does go to him. I mentioned I drew strength from the examples of Peter and John before, who were ordinary fishermen, but I've also gotten a lot of encouragement in this from the life of Joshua in the Old Testament as well. As the one who led the Lord's people into the promised land, he became arguably one of Israel's greatest leaders, and yet he didn't become that overnight. There was a process of learning and growth, and there was one very important person whom God used to help make Joshua the person he was to become. Today, I'd like us to look at an event in Joshua's life recorded in Exodus 17, because it really has a lot to teach us as leaders, especially as we think about the players who take the center stage in the story. The first player we see is Moses. Under his courageous leadership, Israel had just crossed the Red Sea a few weeks before, not as an organized army, but as a band of former slaves newly released from 400 years of servitude in Egypt. They were hardly prepared to face an enemy straight away, but there the enemy was 
right in front of them. And though there were plenty of other, older, more experienced men to choose from, Moses turned to Joshua to lead their first encounter with the inhabitants of the land, the cruel nomadic tribe of Amalek, at a place in the wilderness called Rephidim. Exodus 17 verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. I'm really touched by Moses' strategy here. We know Moses knew how to handle an enemy. After all, he'd killed an Egyptian before this, and yet he did not lead the army himself, but rather turned to Joshua. Most commentators believe Joshua was only around 20 years of age at this time, and though young, he would have already seen much of God's power and Moses' leadership at work. Joshua would have been born a slave in Egypt. He would have experienced that first Passover and crossed the Red Sea as they followed the pillar of fire and cloud. He would have witnessed Moses strike the rock and would have drunk the water that miraculously sprang from it. He would have seen manna fall from the sky and eaten his fill along with the rest of Israel. Joshua already knew from personal experience that the God they were following was the mighty God who saves and that Moses was his chosen leader. And so when Moses called him to lead the battle, Joshua didn't hesitate or question. He responded in faith and obedience based on what he already knew of God's power and faithfulness. Nothing gives us the impression, though, that the men of Israel had any fighting ability at this time whatsoever. But Joshua stepped out in faith, and it really became a turning point in his life that prepared him for the future God had planned for him. The amazing victory at Rephidim taught Joshua that it is really the Lord who saves and that he will be with us in the battles of life. But it also taught him how those battles are won. While he was in the thick of things, battling the enemy face to face, Moses stood on top of the hill and raised his staff over the scene below. This wasn't just any staff. It was a symbol of God's presence with them. This was the staff that had parted the Red Sea and brought water from the rock in the desert. Moses was calling down the power and presence of God on Joshua as he battled. What an encouragement Joshua must have received looking up and seeing Moses praying for him, reminding him where the victory would come from. 
I want you to notice as well that Moses didn't stand there alone. As fatigue slowly crept through his arms, Aaron and Hur came alongside to steady his hands and he humbly accepted their help. Moses, Aaron and Hur were individually some of God's strongest leaders and yet they needed one another for God's purposes to be fulfilled. And you know, it's no different for you and me today. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that we aren't lone rangers in serving God. As his children, we are the members of Christ's body on earth. We are one body united in him. But just like our biological bodies, the body of Christ has many individual parts. Each of us is unique and necessary and we all have an important part to play as we work together to see God's purposes accomplished. I have an illustration that really might be helpful. Think of it this way. One day a man was walking alongside a lake when suddenly he heard a cry for help. Turning around, he looked towards the water and saw a person drowning. Immediately, he ran to where he could reach the individual and grasped them with his hands. He pulled with all the strength of his back and legs until they were safely on shore. In that rescue, each of the different members of the man's body had different parts to play. One was not more important than another. If it were not for his ears, he wouldn't have heard the cry. Without his eyes, he couldn't have found the person. He wouldn't have been able to reach them or save them without the coordinated efforts of his legs, arms, hands and back. If any one of those different parts of his body had not done its job, the drowning person would have been lost. The same is true in the body of Christ. We are all vital to God's rescue plan. We need one another and it's necessary that we not only do our work, but that we work together in order to accomplish God's purposes. The victory at Rephidim shows us there is no room for personal kingdom building when it comes to serving the Lord and doing his will. Our differing gifts and strengths don't set us against each other in some sort of spiritual competition. Rather, they enable us to work together, shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm, hand to hand, to see God's purposes accomplished. Rephidim was perhaps Joshua's first lesson in leadership. Think about what he learnt that day. He learned that God would never leave him nor forsake him and that he was able to do all things through the one who gave him strength. He learned how prayer changes things, making the impossible suddenly possible. And he learned the value of each one playing their part. God was going to use this event to equip Joshua for future exploits. And he began by giving Joshua a promise. Immediately after their victory at Rephidim, God made a promise in Exodus 17 verse 14 that he wanted Joshua particularly to hear. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So what was it that God wanted Joshua to be sure to hear? It was that he would completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. This promise about the annihilation of the Amalekites actually prepared Joshua for what lay just ahead for him. After Rephidim, the Israelites journeyed on and soon they were poised to enter the promised land. In Numbers 13, God told Moses to send one man from each of the 12 tribes to spy out the situation and report back on what the land was like and whether the different tribes who lived there were strong or weak, few or many. Joshua was one of those spies. After 40 days, they returned with their report, and the good news was that the land was amazing. They said it flowed with milk and honey, and they brought back huge clusters of grapes, huge pomegranates, and huge figs to prove it. The bad news was that the people were huge as well. Apparently, there were some actual physical giants in the land. Ten of the spies didn't believe Israel could conquer them, saying that they felt like grasshoppers when compared to them. Only two of the spies, the young Joshua and the much older Caleb, disagreed with that assessment. They believed that God would help them no matter who their adversaries were. Why do you think Joshua in particular would feel so confident about their chances against the people who lived in the land God had promised them? Well, one of the groups living there was in fact the Amalekites, whom God had promised to completely wipe out. Remember that God specifically wanted Joshua to know that he was going to remove the Amalekites from the equation and not allow them to hinder his people any longer. Joshua remembered both God's promise and his past faithfulness at Rephidim and applied it to the situation they were now in. If God could defeat the Amalekites as he'd promised to do, and he surely would, then he could easily defeat all the other ites in the land as well, even the giants that so terrified the other spies. It was faith in the promise of God and the sure knowledge of his faithfulness in the past that fueled Joshua and Caleb's obedience. Now, they weren't just being positive. They weren't just being brave. They were acting in utter faith that God would do exactly as he said he would and bring his people into the land. So Joshua encouraged the others to take possession of the land, believing that in God's strength they could certainly do it. The question is, would Joshua have had that confidence had he not experienced what he did at Rephidim and had he not believed God's promise made there? What do you think?
You're probably familiar with the rest of the story. Because of their unwillingness to trust the Lord and follow him into the land he'd sworn to give them, Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 long years, one year for each day they'd spent spying out the land. With the exception of Joshua and Caleb, that entire generation of men who'd come out of Egypt died in the wilderness. They were not allowed to enter God's promised land because of their unbelief. Even Moses was not allowed to enter the land for his previous unbelief. So after the 40 years of wandering and the death of Moses, Joshua became the leader of Israel. He became the one who took the people into the promised land, leading them in the many battles they faced and establishing them in the place God had given them. But he could not have done that had it not been for Moses who showed him the way. So let's think about what we see in Moses and Joshua in terms of what biblical leadership looks like. What did Moses, the mature, experienced leader, do for Joshua? He modeled obedience. His faith may have faltered at some critical moments, but the overall arc of Moses' life was one of obedience to what God told him. He modeled prayer. And not just at Rephidim, Moses spent time with the Lord, so much so that his face shone with the Lord's presence. You remember? Joshua would have seen that. And when the time came, he recognized what God was doing in Joshua's life. Moses gave Joshua room to be obedient to that calling and supported him in it. What did Joshua, the leader in waiting, learn about leadership from Moses? Well, he learned that leadership is about showing others how to follow God. It's about encouraging those around you to be faithful to God and to his word. He learned that leadership is not always easy, that battles are a part of life and need to be met with faith steadiness and strength. And he learned that he was made for community and needed others to accomplish God's will because we're always better together. So I guess my questions then to us all are these. How are we modeling true faith and obedience to those around us? What kind of footsteps are we leaving for them to walk in? How are our own support systems working? I mean, do we even have one? Who steadies our hands when fatigue sets in? Are we willing to take second place when necessary? Do we always need to be the point person? Or are we willing to help sustain others in what they're called to do? And are we intentionally discipling the next generation of leaders Are we giving them the opportunity to lead while praying for God's blessing on them? For the Joshua's among us, and in a sense, you know, we're all Joshua's, no matter how long we've known and served the Lord. Are we being good learners? Are we allowing more experienced, mature leaders to mentor us? 
Are we serving as opportunities arise, no matter how simple or how challenging? Are we seeking his face through his word and prayer, trusting God to place us where he wants, when he wants? Are we deepening our relationship with Jesus, remembering that we can't fill someone else's cup if our own cup is empty? Good leadership begins with good fellowship, if I can invent a word. We are all leaders in some things, but in all things, we should be followers of the one Lord Jesus Christ. May we truly be able to say to others, as Paul did, follow me as I follow Christ. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.